Hello and welcome to episode three of the Cash Learning Partnership podcast, which we have now officially renamed to the much snappier title, The Cashcast. This third episode of the podcast was recorded during Humanitarian Networks and Partnerships Week in Geneva, where we were joined by the panellists from an event we hosted discussing CALP's Future of Financial Assistance report. At the start of 2019, CALP set out to develop, as a network, a common understanding of possible futures for financial assistance or the range of financial flows available to people in crisis. We wanted to answer questions like, how can people affected by the humanitarian crises of the future receive more effective and user-centred financial assistance? What does this mean for the role of humanitarian actors and others involved in financial assistance? And how can we make sure that our analysis starts from what's needed and not from what we're set up to provide? The resulting report set out a range of scenarios for how the humanitarian landscape and financial assistance might look in 2030, as well as the drivers influencing these scenarios. The debate that has been generated by this report, including our event in December at Cash Week in London, reveals some major implications for humanitarian actors. For example, is the system we operate within set up to listen to the right people and respond to their needs? How well do we play with others? And are the right incentives in place? These were the questions we covered in our session at Humanitarian Networks and Partnerships Week and explored in more detail with the panellists in the recording you'll hear in just a moment. But before we go over to that recording, this is just a reminder that the Cashcast is now available on all of the top directories, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts, where you can rate and subscribe. Previous episodes of the podcast, as well as the Future of Financial Assistance report discussed in this episode, are available on our brand new website at calpnetwork.org. Now, let's hear from our Future of Financial Assistance panellists. Hi, everyone. My name is Jenny Caswell, and I work for the GSMA in the Mobile for Humanitarian Innovation Programme. Uh, For those of you who are listening who are less familiar with the GSMA, we are the Trade Association for Mobile Network Operators, and we represent the interests of over 750 mobile operators around the world. We work to leverage mobile technology to improve the lives of people um, who are underserved. And we, in our humanitarian program, try to digitize humanitarian assistance when and where it makes sense in a way that is inclusive for the most vulnerable populations. My name is Lars Peter Nissen. I am the director of ACAPS. ACAPS basically provides uh, business intelligence for the humanitarian sector. Our slogan is, uh, see the crisis, change the outcome. And so what we do is to try to give evidence a bigger voice in decision-making, to make sure that when we make priorities with respect to humanitarian action, that that's really based on a solid understanding of the context we operate in. My name is Meg Sattler, and I work for Ground Truth Solutions, and Ground Truth Solutions tracks perceptions of the affected population in humanitarian situations to ensure that the voices of the affected population influence performance monitoring response-wide and for individual projects. So thank you for joining us today. So the Future of Financial Assistance report has been out for a few months now. Um, What do you think this report means for how we need to be planning and working differently? So both as cash actors, but as actors more broadly across the sector. So one of the the biggest takeaways, um, I think, that that us at GSMA took from the report is 
is the importance of treating CBA as part of a broader landscape of financial flows. Um, there is a recent ODI report that shows that humanitarian assistance makes up just 1% of resource flows into humanitarian contexts. And therefore, um, it's really crucial to be looking outside of the humanitarian sector to be working with private sector actors to ensure that we can leverage the competencies that the private sector um, can provide and find more um, innovative and inclusive ways of, of partnering with act actors outside of the humanitarian sector. Jenny, your challenge yesterday that you took from that report was that we don't play well with others. Do you think that an element of this is an attitude shift in terms of humanitarian actors seeing themselves as part of this bigger system and perhaps approaching partnerships in a different way? Yes, I think a big part of the problem and the challenge is, is around mindsets. Well, we've been working at the GSMA with our mobile network operators on one side and our humanitarian partners on the other side to try and break down these barriers and improve the translation piece between these two very different sectors. We've been doing this for a number of years now, and, and as you say, I think a key part in this is trying to change the mindset, uh, the attitude and the perceptions. And I think until the humanitarian sector engage or take the time to engage more meaningfully with the private sector, there will continue to be this idea that maybe the private sector adds um, a certain element of risk and therefore we won't create the sustainable partnerships that are needed to, to drive um, more long-term solutions for the people that we're trying to serve. But I also think that there are a couple of other challenges as well in, in why maybe the humanitarian sector isn't playing so well with the private sector at the moment. Um, I think there's also a lack of time and capacity within the humanitarian sector and also insufficient and inappropriate structures to, to be able to engage with the private sector in a meaningful way. And also, um, I think a key element which is kind of linked to, to this first challenge around maybe misperceptions is limited understanding and knowledge of the private sector. So I think until we spend time to increase dialogue and come up with really practical examples of how humanitarian organizations are working with private sector actors, then this mindset shift is going to take a while to change. I think you described the problem accurately. I, I can see a lot of things you see. And still, when I hear you talking about it, it's a, it's a lack of capacity, it's a lack of knowledge. We need to shift attitude, mindsets, those things. I agree that we need to do that, but I, I think that underlying that is a deeper problem. And that's basically, we don't need to play nice with the private sector. And the question I'm trying to pose is, why is that? What's that underlying incentive structure? That means that in spite of people being very willing to work with the private sector, I'm sure you get a lot of interest. And collaboration is the word we use today. It's, you know, it's the new black. We don't do it. So why is that? Why is it that in spite of all the goodwill and professionalism we have in the sector, our collective actions add up to something which is the same, same, same. Um, I think to pick up on that point about incentive structures, obviously for private sector organisations, their survival depends on their ability to be able to provide value to their clients. But do you think that 
the sort of radical change that's needed as laid out in reports like the future of financial assistance, do you think that's actually possible for organisations that are beholden to both their client, which in this case is the crisis-affected person, but also their donor? Well, I think the question is, who is our client and what is our business model? And I don't doubt the, the honest desire to, to help people in, in, in humanitarian crisis from the community. I think that's very clear. We all know that. But you have to be blind not to see that we have a problem. And so what is that? And, and, and yeah, I think that in many ways, if you lose 200,000 on a contract to a donor, you'll probably be out of a job. If you forget to set up a feedback mechanism, to the people who serve in your program, you might get a slap on the wrist, but you probably won't be fired. And so we're dealing with two very different kinds of accountability, and the upstream accountability tends to trump the accountability towards the people who serve. I think I would maybe just add to that. Um, there, the, even the accountability structures to donors are not as stringent as they could be in terms of the way that we deal with the affected population. And I think there's two issues here. One of them is that the structures that we have that exist today that really favour these massive United Nations agencies taking huge chunks of money and then deciding what to do with them with really very limited accountability. But there's also the fact that I think when we think about the future of financial assistance and the way that it was laid out in the report, what was very exciting about that is something that Lars Peter was talking about in the panel discussion the other day, which was that these power structures are going to be taken away from us more than us having to keep tweaking them around the edges. And I think that's going to be the only way that we're going to see actual accountability for affected people, because by virtue of the structures changing, they will inherently have more power in terms of the ability to choose their service providers. Um, and I, I think, though, that that is quite a way off. But I do see the sector going that way, and I see that as quite a positive thing. One of the points that you made yesterday, Lars Peter, was um, you were talking about a 2016 ODI report called Time to Let Go, and you said that it would be more appropriately titled This Will Be Taken From You. I think that's what you said. And what do you think that will actually look like? How Have you seen examples of this power being taken away, or how do you think this will play out? Yeah, I, I think we see that in, in different ways. And I, I should say, I think it's a great report. It wasn't a comment on the quality of the analysis. It's very precise. But I find it interesting that we, in spite of how self-critical we are as a community, still shy away from really um, taking the last step, if you want. And if, I think what we are looking at is some kind of network-centric way of working. And so it entails a loss of control and a, an interaction between diverse I think social media is doing it on the assessment side to a certain extent. I don't think we can control the narrative the way we could previously. I also don't think governments can control it in the way uh, they used to be able to. And I think that's extremely positive. I think um, the way we see governments becoming more and more assertive against uh, humanitarians operating is a loss of control from, for us. It, we, we, ha we have to think about how do we fit into a a situation where we can't just go in and do more or less what we think is required. And, and that is, is both a good and a bad thing, because sometimes we're excluded for obvious reasons where the government doesn't want to help its own population. Other times it's because we might actually be undermining what the government is trying to do. And so I, I do think we're under pressure in a healthy way. And I begin to see a shift in the way we think. I don't think we've really seen the full extent of the transformation that will come. And I suspect that once it starts, it will come very quickly. And 
Maybe just to add, I, th- I think that the the private sector has been engaging in humanitarian context and in disaster response for, for years and years. If we take the example of mobile network operators and the role that connectivity plays, for example, after a disaster, these networks are a lifeline for people. And we've been working with our mobile operator members to ensure that the mobile operators' networks are as robust and resilient as possible, especially in these areas that are at risk um, of particularly natural crises. And uh, as the world continues to digitize, we will continue to see the private sector playing a role in these contexts, whether the humanitarian sector like it or not. And I think that the way that we can create the biggest impact for the people that the humanitarian sector is serving is by collaborating more closely with the private sector and drawing on these core competencies rather than potentially kind of duplicating um, systems that already exist. And maybe just one example of that is specifically around cash, looking at how you can use different modalities to deliver cash. Mobile money already exists in many of these contexts. It's absolutely not perfect because these contexts are more challenging. But if we, if the humanitarian sector and the private sector can work more closely together to really try and ensure that there are agent networks, to ensure that liquidity models work in these um, more difficult environments, then we can leverage the existing infrastructure that is already there and has been there for for years and years because ultimately these private sector organizations are often parts of the community. The agents are refugees, for example, serving their own communities. Um, So they're already existing in these contexts and and um, many humanitarian organizations are already recognizing that, but I think we can do more to kind of push that message. If I could just add one thing to that, I think another phenomenon that is adding to this speed up of a process of accountability is climate change, for better or worse, becoming quite an equaliser in humanitarian response. And I think we still have these ideas that there's this inherent kind of colonial power difference in humanitarian situations. But if you look at, for example, the recent bushfires in Australia and the fact that the way that the humanitarian response has been handled there kind of within one community and that is now completely blown up because people's preferences for cash transfers weren't taken into account at the time of design and that the design was very much a cut and paste from existing humanitarian programs internationally. I think the more that we see those examples, the more that the world will start shifting its thinking in terms of humanitarian response. Um, And so I know that that's not a good thing to be happening, but I think it's a good thing to be able to bring some of these issues more to the fore. I was thinking yesterday we, we had a panel where we were quite critical right, of, of the sector. I sort of felt bad about that. So I think it's also important to say that it's not necessarily a good thing that we're losing control. It's also a really bad thing in some ways. And But the point is we, we cannot pretend that we are alone anymore. Obviously other actors around us that we have to influence and have to work with. And the humanitarian challenge I think is changing from one of handing out a bucket to figuring out how do we influence all of these actors to ensure that the overall outcome of the, our collective actions is principled, is actually in accordance with the humanitarian principles. And we really need to get thinking about that because I don't see a lot of organizations actually adapting their strategies and thinking to that sort of network-centric way of working. I couldn't agree more. And um, 
I wanted to give a kind of specific example because again I I don't think that the private sector should be doing this alone and I don't think that the humanitarian sector should be doing this alone and one example um, touching on your point around principles is something that we've been doing in Rwanda um, we've been working with MTN Rwanda which is one of the main mobile network operators there and the American Refugee Committee to train around 800 uh, mobile money agents on the humanitarian principles to ensure that they are more aware of the humanitarian principles and can work with their customers, their often vulnerable customers, in a better way. Um, and we're specifically targeting the agents in and around the six refugee camps in Rwanda. And that's a really, I think, good example of showing how ARC has shared their knowledge of, of the humanitarian sector and then we're drawing on the private sector through MTN Rwanda to help deliver the, these messages to the different agents across the, across the country. Taking all of this into account, what sorts of changes, even small steps, would you like to see from humanitarian organisations in the short term, so sort of over the next six to 12 months, acting on the recommendations from the Future Financial Assistance Report? I mean, I think a, an easy one, probably quite an obvious one, is to stop incessantly using rhetoric about putting people at the centre without actually very specifically intending to do that and putting practical steps in place to be able to do that. All of our findings from Ground Truth demonstrate that people don't feel empowered by humanitarian aid, that most of them don't feel that they can participate, that a lot of them don't have the information that they need, and yet constantly... We're at these big conferences in Geneva where this tends to be the kind of biggest theme of the day. There are very practical ways that you can do that. You can set up mechanisms, you can just do surveys, you can just talk to people. But I think as a sector, my biggest recommendation would be for donors particularly to put more pressure on implementing agencies to demonstrate not that they're talking to people but what they're doing with the information that they're receiving there are very few donor frameworks that exist that demand agencies to do that, to demonstrate that they've received feedback and that they've changed anything based upon that feedback. There are discussions going on about this at the moment, but I think that that's a very easy win, actually, for donors to be able to make a massive difference across the sector. So that would be my probably most immediate and urgent recommendation. I, I think I'd like to encourage our best and brightest colleagues to quit their job and start a humanitarian startup focused on delivering value to humanitarian operations within some area that you are really, really passionate about. Because I don't think that the mainstream humanitarian organizations that occupy most of the bandwidth in our sector today are going to be the humanitarian organizations of the future. And so there's a great opportunity if you have... A, entrepreneurial gene and you're a humanitarian? Um, I think for, for us, what we've seen a lot of in the past is humanitarian organisations approaching the private sector and maybe mobile network operators specifically from a CSR perspective. I think that's absolutely fine, but I think we need to move beyond this idea um, that these types of partnerships should always be based around CSR because there is this line from CSR through to more commercially sustainable, commercially viable models. And we need to create partnerships that exist across that whole line if we're going to um, create 
impact over the long term rather than just over these kind of six to 12 month program cycles that the humanitarian sector runs on. Yeah, I'd like to make a recommendation to the private sector. Uh, stop spending your CSR money on very rich humanitarian organizations and start investing in community-based organizations in the global south. And that concludes episode three of the Cashcast. You can find the Future of Financial Assistance report that we discuss in this episode, along with a range of blogs, videos and other related resources on our recently launched website, calpnetwork.org. If you have any ideas for future topics we should cover in the Cashcast, please let us know. Once again, you can find us on social media or email us. We hope you'll join us for episode four. Thanks for listening. <laughs>